Welcome to Hanchuk Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuk. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Well, let's take a walk down range and see what the target shows us. Ooh, we hit in the American section of the target today. Looks like we'll be talking about the presidential election of 1800. I know in the past few decades we've had some rather contentious presidential elections, but let me tell you something. You ain't seen nothing compared to the election of 1800. In my opinion, it's one of the biggest train wrecks of all time when it comes to elections. To understand why 1800 was such a mess of an election, we first have to understand the original provisions that were put in place to elect the president. The framers, the guys who wrote the Constitution, spent more time arguing how to select the president than pretty much on any other matter. And it's a very difficult time for them because most of the framers were totally against what would be kind of the obvious ways to choose the president. They were against having the Congress choose somebody to be president, and they were against having a direct vote of the people. Now, early on in the convention, there was some support for having the president selected by Congress, but as time went by and as they argued and talked things through, that idea lost support. Alexander Hamilton said, if the president is selected by Congress, it would put the president too much under the legislative thumb. Now, very few framers wanted to choose the president by popular vote. Most of them agreed that this would lead to just total disorder. And before you think they were total elitists and that they didn't think the people were smart enough to pick a president, please realize that even at this time, the new United States is a very large country geographically. And with the communications available at that time, the framers knew that it would be really tough for any common citizen to make informed choices, to get the information they needed. George Mason, who was a delegate from Virginia, he summed it up this way. He said, the extent of the country renders it impossible that the people can have the requisite capacity to judge of the respective pretensions of the candidates. So after weeks of arguing this all out, the framers finally settle on a plan that was actually put forth again by Alexander Hamilton. And this is going to be kind of a two-part election, and this is going to set up something called the Electoral College. So here's the original provisions in the Constitution. So each state is going to get a certain number of presidential electors. How many? Well, it's going to be the same number of people they have in Congress. There are two senators plus however many reps they have in the House. These electors will be chosen by each state. The people will vote for them. And these electors in their own states are then going to cast two votes each for a different person for president. And these electoral votes are going to be counted up, and the person who receives the majority will become president, 
and the person who receives the second highest number would become vice president. You know, hey, he was the second choice, all right, vice president. Now, yeah, if the tie occurs or if nobody gets a majority of the votes, then the election of the president will be thrown in the House of Representatives and they will vote by states and will need a majority of the states to select somebody. If a tie occurs in the second place spot for vice president, that's going to be thrown into the Senate and each senator will cast votes and again, a majority will be needed. The whole point of this is for these electors to be like the most enlightened, the most respectable citizens, the people who knew what was going on, and they would make a wise choice for president. So they were to be like free agents. They would be choosing who they thought was best. Now, did this system work? Sure it did for our first two presidential elections in 1789 and again in 1792. It worked wonderfully. Why? Because George Washington ran for president and he was elected unanimously and his vice president was John Adams and everything worked great. But then Washington decided he had enough and he wanted to go home to Mount Vernon and hang out and he actually opened the whiskey distillery. But anyway, on his way out the door, Washington gives his farewell address. Let me quote you a part of it. He says, however, political parties may now and then answer popular ends. They are likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust domination. Wow. George is warning us about political parties. He's seen the rise of our first two parties, which I'll get to in a second. And he is very fearful that partisan politics in the future would like totally undermine this whole idea of popular sovereignty that our government is built upon. And that's what starts to happen in the election of 1796. In this election, our first two political parties actually run candidates. For the Federalist Party, we have John Adams running for president. For the Democratic-Republican Party, also sometimes called the Jeffersonian-Republican Party, we have Thomas Jefferson. As the election plays out, John Adams wins a majority of the electoral votes. He actually wins by three votes. And that means he becomes president. But according to the provisions of the Constitution, the runner-up, his arch-rival, Tommy Jefferson, now becomes vice president. Think about that for a second. Put that in the context of the elections we've had over the past couple decades. Could you imagine, over the past 20 years or so, the winner of each election being president and the person they defeated being their vice president? Like, dude, that's crazy. But that's how it played out in 1796. And things are going to completely fall apart four years later as we roll into this election of 1800. Both parties by this time are really well established. And both parties are going to nominate not only presidential candidates, but also vice presidential candidates. 
For the Federalists, we have John Adams for president and Charles Pinckney for vice president. For the Democratic Republicans, we have Thomas Jefferson for president, Aaron Burr for vice president. On top of this, both parties also nominate candidates to serve as presidential electors in each state. And these elector candidates, if they're picked, are going to vote for their party's presidential and vice presidential nominees. It's a done deal. They pledge to do this. Now you say, wait a second. According to the provisions, the guy who gets the most is president, the guy who gets second most is vice president, and if there's a tie, then it goes to the House of Representatives. Well, each party had a plan in place. In each party, the plan was that one of their respective electors would vote for some third candidate or would abstain from casting that second ballot. And that way, the party's presidential candidate would win one more vote than the vice presidential candidate and everything would work out cool. So that brings us to the actual election. As the electoral votes are counted, John Adams, the Federalist, receives 65 electoral votes. Charles Pinckney, his running mate, received 64, and John Jay got one. Remember, that's part of the plan, so Adams would win one more than his vice presidential candidate. So that worked out really well for them. Unfortunately for the Federalists, though, they didn't win the election because Thomas Jefferson won 73 electoral votes, and that's a majority. The problem for the Democratic-Republicans, though, they messed up their plan about having one elector not vote for the vice presidential candidate. And what ends up happening is Aaron Burr also gets 73 electoral votes. So we have a tie for president. Jefferson and Burr both have 73. So the election is going to be thrown into the House of Representatives. People say, well, what's up with Burr? Everybody knew that Jefferson was the presidential candidate and Burr was the vice presidential candidate. So how come Burr didn't just step aside or step down or, or concede the election to Jefferson? Well, there was pressure from his party to do so, but there was also a lot of confusion. It wasn't known because the Constitution wasn't clear. It wasn't known if Burr could just concede the election to Jefferson and automatically become vice president or whether if he did this he would have to like totally withdraw and that would mean one of the Federalist candidates in this case John Adams would have been vice president so because they didn't know this and because of Burr's personality he doesn't back down so as I said the election goes to the House and we have states voting by state Democratic Republicans in the House from the very start, see Jefferson as the presidential candidate and Burr as his vice president. But there's a couple of crazy possibilities here as the House gets together to vote. Their enemies, the Federalists, could try to mess with things and could swing enough votes to make Burr the president. Or, another odd little possibility, is the Federalists could swing enough votes to refuse to break this deadlock between Jefferson and Burr. And what would that mean? That would leave 
the Secretary of State, John Marshall, to act as president, and Marshall was a Federalist. However, neither of these things actually happened, and a big part of that is because of Alexander Hamilton again. Hamilton hates Burr, so Hamilton starts writing letters like crazy to Federalist members of the House, urging them to vote for Jefferson. Now, Hamilton doesn't like Jefferson either, but his thinking is that Jefferson is by far not so dangerous a man as Burr. Basically, Hamilton wanted someone with what he considered wrong principles to be president rather than someone who he considered to be devoid of any principles. <laughs> so the House begins to vote. This is going to take place between February 11th and February 17th, 1801. And they're going to vote. And in the first ballot, Jefferson gets eight states, Burr gets six states, two states had their votes divided, so they didn't count. Uh-oh, that's not enough. Nine states are needed for an absolute majority. So they conduct another ballot, and another, and another, and another, and another. Thirty-five ballots are conducted in the House of Representatives between those dates. And every time we have those outcomes, eight states to Jefferson, six to Burr, two divided. Finally, on the 17th, on the 36th ballot, some people start to give in because they're like, dude, we got to get this thing settled. Let's go. Jefferson wins 10 states, and that wins him the presidency. Burr gets four states, two states actually uh, abstained from voting because they were Federalist majorities. The point here is this entire fiasco brings like three new things into the picture when it comes to selecting a president. We see the parties nominate a president and a vice president candidate. We see the parties nominate presidential electors and these electors are pledging to vote for their party's people and we see automatic casting of the electoral votes in line with those pledges. Yeah, so much for these electors being like free agents choosing the person they think is best. What a mess! And this is such a mess that it causes something amazing to happen. An amendment to the Constitution! How many elections have done that? This is the only one. Before the next presidential election, we have the 12th Amendment ratified to the Constitution in 1804. Now this is kind of a long amendment, and the part we're concerned about is this. It's going to make a change to the electoral college system. It'll do this by separating the presidential and vice presidential elections. It says in part, the electors shall name in their ballots the person voted for as president, and in distinct ballots, the person voted for as vice president. Because of the 12th Amendment, we aren't going to have another fiasco like 1800. Of course, it's 200 some years later and we still have contentious partisan politics all over the place and we have hotly contested presidential elections. But that's another story. Before I leave you, if you're a fan of musical theater, Hamilton 
actually has a song that briefly talks about the election. I've not seen the musical, but apparently the song does focus on more like on Hamilton's affecting the outcome, writing letters to his fellow Federalists. Also of note, in Gore Vidal's 1973 novel Burr, which is of course about Aaron Burr, he speaks of the voting that took place in the House. And there you have it, kind listeners. Thanks for tuning in. And I look forward to talking with you again in our next episode.